0: Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to The Important Part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Important Part. This is Another Mid-Year Outlook episode, we get a couple bonuses this year, and it's coming at a time when the market finally entered bear market territory and we're looking down the barrel of the rest of the year. I am still hopeful that the second part of the year is better than the first, but that might not be saying much considering the first was quite painful. And with me today is somebody who can shed a lot more light on a second half outlook This is somebody who has been bullish for most of this time and remains pretty bullish, and he'll give us a bunch of reasons why that is. So I'm going to have Brian Belsky join me today, and we'll talk through his outlook on the Fed, his outlook on valuations, what he sees as some of the headwinds still in markets, but the things that also could provide tailwinds as we get through the end of the year. Brian is chief investment strategist and leader of the Investment Strategy Group, He provides strategic investment and portfolio management advice to both institutional and private clients. Brian's group produces several investment strategy publications on a regular basis, with particular focus on both the U.S. and Canadian equity markets. In his more than 30 years in the investment industry, Brian has held various senior strategy research roles, including positions at Oppenheimer, Merrill Lynch, and Piper Jaffrey. Brian is frequently quoted in the financial press, including regular appearances on CNBC, Bloomberg, and BNN, and is renowned for his accuracy as a strategist. In fact, Brian has been ranked as a top gun analyst by Brendan Woods since 2016. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree from St. Cloud State University and splits his time between the BMO offices in New York and Toronto. With that, let's get to the interview. Hi, Brian. Hi, Liz. Welcome to the podcast. I want to ask you a question up front. I don't know if you get this a lot from other people. I mean, we do television pretty often. We just did a show together last week. People always ask me, do you get a list of the questions before you go on? Like are you are you so prepared and you know exactly what the host is gonna ask you?
1: No. <laughs> no, you know what's really funny about that. So, in this, I've been doing TV since 1996, and I've had you know I've been on a number of different networks. I don't tell you that to thump my chest; I just tell you that to give you perspective. And, and and a lot of times we have gatekeepers, right? So we have assistants and EAs, and my current EA is like, you gotta you gotta reply back because they want to know your thoughts. And my common reply is always. I'm never writing the notes because they never read the notes. They never go off the questions. It's just whatever whatever the, the wind is blowing that minute, that's what they ask. And so I I refuse to do pre-interviews.
0: I do some prep interviews, and I'll give my thoughts. But my favorite question is always, "Don't don't they give you the questions? You know exactly what you're going to talk about? No, we have no idea. And the reason I started it like this is because I didn't give you any questions. <laughs> So this is totally off the cuff. Um, But if there's anybody that I can do that with and trust that it'll still be amazing, it's Brian Belsky. So what we're going to do is a second half outlook, or we're going to try. We're going to brush off our crystal balls and pretend that we have any idea what's going to happen in the second half. But I think because we're recording this, now I won't release until the end of the month, but because we're recording this the day after the June Fed meeting, which was the 75 basis point hike. Let's start there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously they had pivoted since last Friday when we got that hot CPI number that everybody was pretty surprised about and decided to go 75 basis points instead. I'll ask you just very directly first, do you think that was the right move? Was that the right number? And then secondly, what do you think it looks like for the rest of the year?
1: You know, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. And I'll answer the question. Sometimes when you do TV, you don't answer the question, but I will answer the question. One thing that I am growing increasingly fatigued with, Liz, is this massive disrespect for the Fed. And and I've said it on TV, and they've come after me a little bit. But in my life, I've learned that you just can't have it both ways, right? So people were jumping up and down that the, the Fed is the greatest thing ever during the credit crisis, which I lived through and was head of U.S. strategy and sector strategy at Merrill Lynch at the time when we didn't even know what QE was prior to that, to the March 2020 lows when the Fed came in in concert with the fiscal stimulus. Now they've been, uh, they meaning consensus or whatever, been increasingly critical of the Fed. And I, I just think that's disrespectful. Now, everybody makes mistakes and And with much humility, we've made a lot of mistakes in our career, including this year. We're still bullish and still positive. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. But I just think people have been too critical of the Fed. That being said, what happened in our lives and what happened the last couple of years, I don't think is in a textbook, Liz. And sometimes I worry that. That we, society of Wall Street, have become too academic and too textbook oriented. We had an exogenous event and the the black swan, everybody keeps asking me, when's the black Mm -hmm. swan coming? Uh, We had (laughs) it, brothers and sisters. It's called the pandemic. um, And we don't know how we're going to get out of this. And the Fed, I think, felt pressure to be aggressive and aggressive they were. I think it would have been awesome if they would have done 100 basis points. Okay. Yeah, I think. And let's just get it out of the way akin to what they did in March of 2020. Right. Let's drop the bomb and the napalm and the nuclear bomb and let's go. They're choosing not to do that because I do think they know the fragility of the economy. Number one. Number two, since then, now we had a great rally, obviously, when we sold the rumor and bought Mm -hmm. the news on equities and fixed income for that matter. Then overnight, we saw the action in Europe from the Swiss bank and from the bank of England. And and then now we're seeing again, volatility. So I I just think, Liz, that people are way too short-term oriented. We are way too fear-driven and we think this inflation is going to be now the new norm. And I go back to what I said with respect to the exogenous slash black swan. We don't know exactly when this is going to to roll over again, but Wall Street and the market seem to think that it's never going to roll over again. And I think whenever you act in a very binary fashion, I think it's usually a mistake. So again, this time, this too shall pass. We're going to have bumpy waters as we try to navigate here, at least near term, what the Fed is looking at it, what it means. But to just to cap off this long-winded <laughs> diatribe, I think that <laughs> I think the disrespect of the Fed has to end. And I think at the end of the day, it will reign supreme.
0: Well, it's interesting. So you talked about black swans and people do ask that all the time. What's the next black swan? Well, that's the definition of a black swan is that we didn't know it was coming, right? So we had the big one, we had the big mm-hmm. kahuna, and then we had a war that erupted between Russia and Ukraine. That was another black swan. And, and we'll continue to have maybe smaller ones until the next big one. But that's how this works, right? I mean, if we could look out 12 months, 24 months at a time and say, okay, you know what? No black swans in that. And here's how everything's going to work according to the textbook – that would be great. I would know exactly what to do with my money. I would know exactly when to do it, right? But that's just not how this whole thing works. You also mentioned we're being too short-term oriented. I don't necessarily disagree, but I'm going to push back a little bit on that. How can we not be, right? So you have a day like yesterday when the Fed said what they did. I think they did a great job yesterday. I think they did a good job communicating it. I think they did a good job Mm -hmm. connecting with the audience who was listening to the message saying, we're watching the consumer. We watch headline inflation, not necessarily core because that's what matters to the consumer. They showed their willingness to pivot at the last minute because of the data that had come in. I think they did great yesterday. They didn't solve all the problems, right? It's not over. We didn't win the war against inflation yet, but I think they did a good job. But- The question then is, if people are being too short-term oriented, it's really difficult not to when you've got one day that you close up a couple percent, and then the next day you're down by three percent pretty quickly, right? So how do you not focus on that? How do you remove yourself from that as an investor?
1: It's a great point, and it depends upon who your audience is, right? So, you know, we have the very good fortune of running equity portfolios for clients at BMO in both Canada and the United States. I can't be in Winnipeg and tell Mr. and Mrs. Hansen, you know, they should be selling today because if you tell a retail high net worth client to sell today, they're not coming back. Mm-hmm. And it's this destruction that happens through fear. Now, if I'm talking to XYZ Hedge Fund, mm-hmm. in which I was yesterday, and I was telling people to sell at the end of the day <laughs> because this is what you need to be able to feel with the market. And I just know that so many investors are underperforming this year. And that we're in one of these periods has really been the theme of this entire call of lack of a better way to put it, ambiguity. We don't know. So what we do know is that the market was up big yesterday. So let's take what we can get on that. So I think there's a lot of different audiences, but if you're going to put a blanket on it, I still think people are too short term. You know, risk adjusted returns work over time. You have to think about what that looks like. And now risk adjusted returns are obviously going to be changing because the risk free rates going up and all this stuff that we look at as strategists and numbers and things like that are adjusting to all of our models. So again, I do believe the blanket should be that we're too short term oriented, but it depends upon what client you're speaking to.
0: Okay, that's fair. All right. So let's break it into two halves, even though that's one of the things in a job like this that really annoys me when we talk about by month or by year or by half. I mean, the market doesn't necessarily care about date on the calendar, but it's an easy way to delineate if there's been shifts in sentiment or shifts in trends. So it feels like the second half should be better. And and I've been saying that I think it sh- it could be better and, and that it very likely will be better than the first half. That doesn't mean we're going to have a rip your face off rally and we're going to end the year up. This is my opinion, not necessarily yours. I'm, I know I know what part of yours is. <laughs> it doesn't mean we're going to have this huge rally and end the year up 20%, right? But I do think that the second half can at least have less volatility than the first half, given that we're going to just have more information coming in over that period if you had to split them into, into two, so we first half, second half, what does the second half look like to you?
1: Well, I feel very Dickensy y uh, today. Uh, <laughs> the best of times, the worst of times, you know, may kick my ass, I'll just tell you okay. that. And it kicked a lot of people's uh-huh. asses. And I think, you know, I'm a, an excessively reflective person and very hard on myself. And we probably should have been more aggressively negative in February, March. Again, you live and learn through that, and with much humility, we've been wrong through that. But when you have the type of historically negative start to the year with, let's take two steps back, and people aren't going to like what I'm about to say, interest rates are still low on a relative basis. I remember when I was a young punk out in California in 1990, I had no credit. I mean, I'm sorry, negative credit. And I went. I put $200 down on a 88 Nissan four-speed pickup at Magic Ford in Valencia, California. And my interest rate was 21.5%.
0: Oh my God. That was a bad financial decision, Brian.
1: (laughs) Well, I know, but here's the better financial decision. Within three months, I put it on my credit card and I saved 8%. Wow. Anyway, it is what it is. You know, when you're a young kid, you got to fight and scrape and do whatever. But Mm -hmm. where I'm going with this is, you know, prognostications of, 4 5 6% 10-year treasuries, 7% treasuries. Remember the average 10-year treasury is 5% over the last I think it's like 50 years or something like that. And to get to 5%, I think we got a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. And it kind of falls through with some of these inflation mongers. I think that it's going to be 8 7 8% inflation perpetually. We actually don't think that's going to be the case and I'm sure that we'll kind of go through that. But I think that we could have a 4 to 5 to even 8% up day if something happens to the Russian Ukraine war that it stops or something happens to Putin that could be a face melting up move and then that would kind of reset the bar i'm not calling for on a year over year basis up 20% that's that's like total pollyanna belsky fly off and do mm-hmm. you know go go on your island cuz no one is ever going to listen to you again But I think flat's the new up, flat's the new up. If we we can get to 4,800, that's going to be flat year over year and an incredible move. And we kind of sit back in early 2023 and we go, holy crap, what just happened? I think 23 and 24 is going to be kind of more of a path to normalization, so to speak.
0: In the market or with policy?
1: Liz, I think in all of the above in markets, both equities, fixed income, earnings, valuation, GDP growth. And I think it's going to be kind of an interesting kind of, we go back and historically and look at normal returns, let's just keep it simple, stupid and call it 8% or 10% or whatever, 8 to 10% returns. And then I think we deal with things like a consumer recession or a CapEx recession or a credit recession. People kind of forget what kind of recessions we can have. And so that being said, you know, I think we need to kind of find some legs here get a feel for how second quarter earnings come out. I think people are going to be shocked that they're not probably going to go down as much as everybody thinks. Mm. Historically, historically, second and third quarter earnings are not good for tech. That had been the historic narrative. But what's happened in tech earnings the last three to five years in particular is the standard deviation of earnings growth in tech has become remarkably resilient and tight. And I think we throw the Kathy Wood ARK stocks and the Robin Hoods and the SPACs into this technology. That's technology. No, it's not. And I think the market's done a really good job discriminating against those ideas. But at the end of the day, if you take a look at 26% of the market's tech, you've got four, almost 5% now energy. Financials have been pretty strong, especially the multidivisional assets of financials. Healthcare starting to come in. There's been different parts of the consumer that's worked. I think earnings can be a little bit better than most people think. I think we're kind of putting this blanket negativity on margins without really doing the work. And so I think earnings could be the surprise. And then we kind of get a breath of fresh air that, oh, by the way, this magical inflation thing starts to drop off. You have people working in the ports in Vancouver and Long Beach and Halifax and Miami and Panama Canal. They're there to unload the boats and the barges. They're not putting things in re-owned facilities. They're actually putting them on natural gas-powered trucks and trains, and putting bringing them off. We've got potentially deflationary environment in some consumer areas that we've had a glut of inventory. This inventory glut, people forget, actually started in December, January because of Omicron was so so bad in the north that we didn't have the strong in-store shopping season like many people thought, and then they had to overly discount, and that's how they met their numbers in the first quarters. All this stuff people forget because we're so focused on the headline and the bullet points and things like that, Liz. And so I think things, I mean, this isn't me just being positive all the time. I think things are going to come together a little bit faster than people think. But going back to my original thought is that whenever you have this massive one or two standard deviation event, in terms of performance, negative performance, we're not going to revert to the mean. If we revert to the mean, that would be great. But um, we could have some surprising returns in the second half of the year, counter to what you're maybe hearing on television or hearing from some of the bears out there.
0: Well, oh, there's so much in that. I don't even know where to where to start.
1: There's a long diatribe again.
0: So one of the things, and I'm just going to offer like random thoughts. This is what happens when you don't write the questions ahead of time. So, the, the inventory glut that we're in right now, I think your points are well taken for how it started and what caused it. I also think that there were so many companies sort of traumatized by the supply chain issues and the fact that there were consumers that wanted to buy stuff and they didn't have anything to sell to them. Mm-hmm. And it was this huge missed opportunity. So, then it was like, you know what? We're not going to make that mistake again. And I feel like that repeats itself in cycles, right? So, we, we went through the financial crisis and banks were like, okay, we're not going to make that mistake again. Well, okay, they might not make that mistake with mortgage-backed securities, and now they're required to hold more reserves. So regulators are going to make sure that they don't make that mistake again. So similarly, with consumer goods companies, they're not going to make the mistake of not having enough inventory on hand to sell to people so they can make money. But then there's other mistakes that always pop up. There's always a new mistake to make. And we're never going to solve all the problems. So- I agree that in the second half, I think things can come together, at least in the market. I think things can come together a little bit more quickly than people are expecting. Where I'm not sure I'm with you is the earnings piece. I think earnings are still, maybe not in the second quarter, because second quarter earnings aren't actually expected to be all that exciting. I think four or five percent growth, maybe. Maybe it's up to six now. But Third quarter and fourth quarter earnings growth still expected to be above 10% for both quarters. And then if you look at EPS in 2023, I think the consensus estimate is still somewhere like the low 250s. And I think the second half of this year earnings and earnings in 2023 still need to come in quite a bit. And that's all assuming that we don't even have a recession, right? If we have a recession. They're going to come in a lot more than that. And it's the speed of it that doesn't match up. And that's what people, I think, forget too, that earnings, you know, and I think I I might have made this point on a previous podcast, a consumer can change their mind today, this moment, that they're going to stop spending money for the next couple of months because they don't know what's going to happen. The company that suffers from them stopping spending isn't going to tell us that they suffered until the quarter after that, right? So there's always this lag. And I think that Earnings are going to end up being disappointing from that perspective, but we're not going to hear about it until later in the second half.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. And, um, you know, remember uh, the the, uh, the age old equation of investing, stocks lead earnings, which lead the economy. So the stock market was trading like we're going to have a bear market, finally hit it. Now it's trading like we're having a recession. Are we going to have it? I don't know it's already telling you that earnings are not going to be as good as everybody thinks. And I get that. And I think third quarter is probably the best option for earnings to be bad. Revision ratios have actually not been great for FY1, meaning the current fiscal year, where next year they've actually held in there. And so there's no doubt that the next year number probably needs to come down a little bit. So let's just do the math. So if you think about third quarter earnings, we hear about and I think it's first couple of weeks in October, right? Almost November. Well, holy, yeah. holy smokes, that's four or five months from now. Right. And so a lot could happen in the stock market before that. So at the stock market's still a discounting mechanism of what is to come. So the market's already told you that we have bad news coming fundamentally, and the market's already kind of, quote-unquote, repriced itself accordingly.
0: Yeah. Okay, so when does inflation actually start coming down? I, I mean, I'll admit, I was wrong. I thought it was going to start coming down in this last print. Not necessarily in a big way, but I thought we'd see some relaxation at least month over month and we'd start to be able to make a trend and that didn't happen. So what do you think?
1: I don't know. Um, And anybody says they do know, they don't know. But I think that we could, per my point, you have this overhang of high commodity prices, right? That's not going to go away until we start drilling and we open up the refining capacity and open up uh, the Enbridge line in northern Minnesota. Let's go or we kind of meet from down below and down below would be the reality that China's open for business. Okay. We had a perfect storm in March, Mm -hmm. right? So China's open for business. We're making stuff there. Really? Yeah, we are still. And we're unloading the barges and and people are back to work. And so I think that might start to facilitate some of it, Liz, but again, um, we're so utterly convinced that this war is going to go on forever. Yeah. And we're so utterly convinced that we're going to have 7 8% inflation forever mm-hmm. um, that I'll take the other side of the coin. Now, you know, some of this is gut. I'm sorry it is because we don't have the data to, to say that. And the reality is we need to fix the, the commodity side of things. And it doesn't seem that the powers that be don't want to fix it.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's that we're starting to get the data. And if the commodity side relaxed, certainly that would help. I think also today we got a bunch of housing data. The housing market is rolling over. Home prices haven't quite reflected it yet, but those are reported on such a lag. It's going to be a a little bit, but the housing data has started to roll over, which is helpful. And retail sales came in disappointingly this week, right? So we're seeing some indication that maybe the consumer has pulled back. So I, I agree. I think, you know, inflation stays elevated compared to what it was before maybe what we've been used to for the last 10 to 15 years but it's not going to stay at these levels forever it's no. really more a question of at what point does it come does it come down fast enough to satisfy the market and does it come down fast enough to satisfy the fed you know i don't think the fed is under any false assumption that we're going to get down to 2% anytime soon
1: yeah i mean what's the average like 2.7% the last 10 years yeah. or something like that and but to your point in terms of short termism, right, we get a print below 7% yeah. inflation. This thing's going to rip. I agree. Because, you know, I think that oh, I know just based on conversations, especially the last month or so, that the majority of institutional accounts, which is my job to talk to institutional accounts around the world, mm-hmm. they're massively um, negative and they're not positioned for upside. So that's why, like a day like yesterday, you tell them, like, get out, get out at the end of the day.
0: Well, so, you know, actually, let's let's close it out on a thought like that on positioning. I completely agree. I think people are positioned very defensively. However, I continue to tell people that through the end of July, I think we see volatility. So it's okay to have a larger than normal cash position. The reason I say that is because we've got this GDP number that's going to come in at the end of July, and we'll find out whether or not we are actually in a recession right now, right? So we had... The negative print in Q1. If we have a negative print in Q2, that's the technical definition of recession. In my opinion, if at that point we still only had a max drawdown in the S&P of 22%, that's not enough. So if we find out that it is in fact two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, then the, the market probably falls another 10 to 15% because that's a recessionary correction. So I'm not comfortable yet to tell people, okay, go position for offense, but it's okay to start thinking about it, right? And start kind of dripping in. What would you tell people? So beyond that GDP print at the end of July, what would you tell people that their portfolio should look like for the rest of the year?
1: Well, we made some changes and are advising people to actually be less cyclical Hmm. and more value and GARP-oriented. And so if you think about the, the construct, just a little Minnesota accent there for you, <laughs> of, the, um, of the S&P 500 with 25 or 26% tech and 10 or 12% discretionary, you're pretty cyclical already right there. But there's certain parts of tech that are actually secular growers. That being said, you know, we like some healthcare stocks. We love financials. We think communication services is a quintessential barbell. Value on one side of kind of growthier areas that are actually giving you GARP right now, in, in our view.
0: And GARP, for anybody who's not aware, growth at a reasonable price.
1: There you go. Too many jargons. Sorry. <laughs> so if we do get this drawdown, we get this negative print market will go down another 10%. You'll eclipse your 30%. And that's when you turn the gas on, right? You want to own consumer discretionary coming out of recession. Right. It's counterintuitive. You want to own technology coming out of a recession. Because remember, when growth is scarce, growth outperforms. Mm. And we're going to have this massive kind of re-rating of value, and we already have this year. But when growth is scarce, growth outperforms. And so you want to go buy those names with quantifiable, discernible, real growth. And so that's why, you know, the strength of our economy is obviously consumer. The other thing to not forget about is that our the backbone of our country, the backbone of our economy was small, mid-cap companies, mm-hmm. small companies. And I've had the good fortune of talking to a lot of private companies. Uh, and they're most of the private companies I talked to are super bullish. And so that kind of relates into the small, mid-cap market that I think actually could be a very timely way to kind of employ the same type of disciplines strong cash flow. The small mid-cap universe, Liz, and for the first time in multiple decades, looks very strong in terms of balance sheets and they're paying dividends. So it's it's really kind of a secular change that I'm seeing in small mid-cap stocks.
0: Anybody who knows me, I promise you I did not pay him to say that. I love small caps always. I cut my teeth in small caps. So I have this like soft spot in my heart. And if I can ever find an opportunity to pitch small caps, I do it. So I love that statement. I want to just clarify for listeners, because you're delineating between cyclicals and value. And a lot of times people put those into the same bucket, right? Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're putting tech into the cyclical category, putting discretionary into the cyclical category. We talk about value, you're talking about financials.
1: Yeah, when I look at cyclicals, okay, so let's a classic cyclical to me would be industrials. Mm Mm-hmm. In, in industrials were already kind of trading at or near kind of multiple lows. That's when you want to sell the cyclicals. You want to buy cyclicals at high G's when the performance grows into their multiple on the opposite side. So many of these other measures like operating performance, return on assets, return on equity are already rolling over in industrials. And that's when you sell them. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, you want to be more careful there. Same thing with materials in the U.S. where materials in Canada look great. You actually want to be more cyclical in Canada. In the U.S., you want to be more value-oriented. What could be more value than, you know, Altria or Molson Coors or Budweiser? I think some of the other consumer staple stocks are very expensive. I think utilities are very expensive. REITs are the best High dividend slash high yielding companies when rates are going higher uh, on a relative basis versus the utilities, mm-hmm. but so I think you have to kind of be careful again. This is the academic practice of on page seventy two of your MBA book. Oh, when the market goes down, I'm to buy Stables, right? Uh, utilities and REITs. Nope, that's already played out. So now you got to go to the next thing. So I think that healthcare obviously too. At one point earlier this year, healthcare was the cheapest sector in the S and P 500 based on our multi factor, multiple way of looking at valuation, not just earnings, but sales and cash flow and all of that. So I think there's parts of healthcare that look really, really, really interesting as well. Got it. All
0: right. I think that's a wrap. I think we did good off the cuff.
1: Wow. I mean, it's just, you know, send me notes next time. Maybe I'll do better.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we can really capture their attention. Um, Flat is the new up, I guess, is the way that I'll wrap that. Brian, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for giving everybody your outlook for the second half. I hope that you're right, that we can at least end flat, and maybe we'll even get a little positive surprise. Who knows?
1: Thanks. It's been an honor. We really appreciate it.
0: There were some really great nuggets in that interview. I always learn a lot from Brian, and I'm so grateful for him to give me his time today. One of the things that I'm I'm not going to get too deep into because it's probably pretty controversial, but his comment on the disrespect for the Fed, and we spend so much time thinking about what the Fed is going to do, what the Fed said, what they might say, which word changed in their statement this time. And, you know, it does make you wonder, are we paying attention to the right thing? And, you know, it's it's easy in markets— especially when things are going poorly, to try to find a villain and try to find what broke and who did it and point fingers. And, you know, sometimes it does feel like we're playing the blame game a little bit. One of the other things that I think was interesting, and it's come up before in some podcast conversations, but the idea that Wall Street has become too academic or too textbook oriented and and not taking enough of a practical approach to investing And I think part of that is when you look at history or when you look at the things that the math tells you about how the market should react or how the economy should react, it provides a guide, but it certainly is not a foolproof map. And we're learning that in this cycle in particular. So I think it's always important to step back and think about things from both an academic, but also a practical standpoint. And then the other thing that we talked about is the idea that investors are too short-term oriented. And maybe that's fear driving the short-term focus. But it is a challenge in this market environment when we've got markets that turn intraday, right? So we look at a market in the morning that's a completely different market in the afternoon. It's really difficult to not be short-term oriented. So I'm hopeful, again, that as we get through summer, we get into the rest of the year. And I think Brian is hopeful of this too, that the volatility calms down And we can stop feeling like we need to pay attention or do something about all the volatility that's happening every day, every week, every month. And then lastly, it sounds like he thinks we're going to see more normal inflation eventually, but not soon. We're looking out into 2023, maybe 2024 before we see that kind of inflation and rate environment, which doesn't really bode well for volatility levels coming up. But it's good to know that At least there's somebody out there who thinks we're going to get back to normal at some point in the future. So I really enjoyed that. I hope again that you all really enjoyed that. And I look very much forward to bringing you the next episode soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at SoFi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Youngstrap. The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Jeff Emptman, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance, and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit SoFi.com
1: legal.